Kane Sims, how are you doing? Very well, Mark. Very well. How are you? Good. I am just great. So glad to be here. It was exciting to be on your podcast not too long ago and very glad to return the favor. Yeah, likewise. I appreciate it. Appreciate the reciprocation. And uh, yeah, look forward to getting into it. You look like you're wearing a, a, a long sleeve jumper over there, Mark. It looks like the weather is getting somewhat nippy, is it? You know, I'll tell you, it's actually, I'll make a confession here. The weather is beautiful out. I just wanted to wear this particular uh, jacket. <laughs> like it's 70 degrees. I have no good reason to be wearing this jacket. <laughs> yeah, I should have a jacket on because it's Baltic here. Like, I should have my hoodie on. You're looking very branded there at the moment. And we were just talking about how the, the yellow cover and the branding. I've got a yellow hoodie as well, which I, I should produce, but it's nestled in a box somewhere. Yeah. It's funny. We did a, a rebrand with our colors at Balto maybe uh, two months ago or so. And one of the core colors in our palette is Blurple. Nice. Um, yeah. So, but it's hilarious because everyone, you know, what a silly freaking color to be one of the core parts of your palette. So, you know, That's we're nice trying to... Color. Blurpleize everything, yeah. <laughs> Blurple is a pretty nice, uh, and it does describe it pretty well. It sounds a bit like a Farrow and Ball color. Are you familiar with Farrow and Ball paint? No, what's that? No, I don't know if it's in the US, but it's in the UK. It's a kind of like a high end paint that you pay too much for, but the colors are very, very nice. And they have colors like Sulkin Room Pink and Mole's Breath and Elephant Tusk Cream and all the crazy little names for it. And Blurple sounds like it could be a, a, one of those colors. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what the blurple would describe. And I can't think of like, uh, I don't know, sunrise, sunset blurple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Sunset blurple is pretty good. Or yeah. uh, deep freezer blurple. Something Ooh. you put out of a freezer, like a frozen kind of like, uh, yeah, blurple. <laughs> it's going to be a, like a, a darker shade of blurple there. Yeah, that sounds it. That sounds it. But it's yeah. interesting how language can create images in your mind and make you create certain assumed meanings behind words. And given that what we both work with is language and natural language, the choice of not so much with Balto, given that you do a lot of ingesting and then recommending in a lot of the areas that we work with, it's all about conversation design. And so the choice of words and the choice of language that you use is important because it does things like this creates certain imagery, creates certain uh, assumptions behind the words that you use. And so it's a, yeah, it's a funny, funny thing. But Blurple is something that I think I'll probably start using from now on to describe anything that is remotely blue or purple. Yeah. I'll talk about the, I love that, the power of language specifically in that painting case as well, or the different colors. How interesting is it that there's something visual that the whole purpose of trying to name it something interesting is to almost enhance and market the color itself. So you're supposed to almost feel like this is more valuable, more important, more unique, more impressive because it has this unique name to it. And you're supposed to remember it. It's supposed to have a ring. It's supposed to kind of be fun or exotic or something that you'd tell your friends about, the sunset blurple. They say, what color is your house? You say, it's sunset blurple. <laughs> It does. It does. It makes it sound a lot more majestic. The English language is just an amazing thing because you can describe something in so many different ways and it ultimately all means the same thing. Like you were reeling off meanings there. It makes it sound more interesting or more unique or more valuable. Basically, all you were saying is it makes it sound better. But we've just got so much language at our disposal that crafting the right words is really important because the choice of words can, as you say, make something appear different to what it is if you were to describe it in a different way. Yeah. So, Kane, the thing that I'm really excited to talk about today is how conversational AI is being used in CX and in Contact Center. 
And I think that one of the things that we could do pretty uniquely in this podcast that you don't get to hear often is almost a tour of the landscape, like with all mm-hmm. the different options and all the different possibilities. And honestly, difficulty choosing what is the right sort of technology to implement and when, what does this landscape look like? Mm-hmm. So I was first thinking maybe we want to approach it from the perspective of voice and not voice. Because I think that everyone is, is aware of trends of you know voice maybe dipping right below the majority of interactions right now. And the question is, you know, where is that going to asymptote? Does it asymptote at 30% of all interactions? Does it trickle off to zero over a decade or two decades? So maybe I'll start there. Like, what are your mm. thoughts on just the future of the voice channel? Well, it depends because I view voice as an interface as opposed to a channel. And so if you're describing voice, the channel as in contact center and people making calls, if perhaps the trend is that that is decreasing over time, perhaps that will continue to decrease over time. But what's happening at the same time is that there is an abundance of new channels, isn't there, becoming available. Like you didn't have people contact you via SMS message 25 years ago or WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger or Amazon Alexa or Google Assistant or whatever the next thing is. They didn't exist. And so you're seeing even social media, if you go back far enough, social contact and serving customers through social channels just didn't exist whatsoever. And so naturally, I think the the volume of contact that was heading to the contact center in the shape of a call is naturally decreasing because of an abundance of other ways of getting in touch and engaging with a business, not just for customer support, but just engaging with businesses in general. But if you look at voice as an interface, which is what I believe it is, then you've got a rise of voice interfaces. You've got voice interfaces within apps, you know, banks like Capital One, Bank of America, Spotify, Pandora, all building voice interfaces into their apps to create kind of almost like voice assistant capabilities to help people navigate the app and and get stuff done a little bit more seamlessly or a lot more seamlessly. Then you've got voice interfaces in things like voice assistants so that you can access whatever it might be, calendars and sending messages or accessing branded skills and actions, things like that, searches, playing music, all these different kind of things you can do with a voice assistant. Then you've got voice interfaces in cars, Mercedes with their own bespoke assistant with third-party capabilities. So if you're an insurance company, potentially there's nothing really stopping you in future from having your insurance company's voice assistant present within a Mercedes vehicle. We saw Serence and Harman announce a partnership where in the Harman Ignite store, which is running on Android, which powers a lot of cars, infotainment systems, Serence are now working on voice activating the apps within the infotainment systems in the vehicles powered by Harman. So I think that maybe the trend of voice decreasing in terms of number of calls into the contact center may be the case. But I think actually in terms of voice being used as an interface is is actually on the increase. And I think we'll continue to see that. Yeah, I totally agree. One of the big limitations that I see for voice, and I'm curious you know, how society adapts to it, is that it's the only interface that when you're using voice, everybody around you knows you're using voice. So there's almost like this self-consciousness that sometimes you'll hear, like whenever you're the person who brings up Siri and and gives a command, all your friends look at you a little bit like, okay. (laughs) So I wonder what the social acceptance will look like if we're going to have a world where everyone is just in the cafe using their voice assistance and it's no big deal, or whether people are going to feel that that's disruptive to the people around them. Mm. I think we've saw very similar things, haven't we, in the past, like you think about, let's say, 10 years ago, 
you know, people would have been a bit self-conscious. Some people are self-conscious even getting their photo taken, just having a photo taken and putting it online. Some people are self-conscious about that. Now, people are just walking about with a phone in their face, talking to this object in the street. If you've ever seen any of my videos, I just walk around the street with a camera in my face, talking while I'm walking my dog. And so the acceptance becomes more accepting as it starts to happen more and more. If you think about the very beginning of the pandemic, even me, I was a little bit, not necessarily like self-conscious, you know, what are other people going to think, but just a bit uncomfortable in general wearing a mask because I'd never wore one before. I don't come from a country where that's kind of like a common practice. And I'd never had one on apart from when I was standing a wooden floor in my old flat is the only time I've ever wore one. And so there's a little bit of kind of like, oh, I don't feel a bit uncomfortable here. But now I put it on without even thinking and everybody else does as well because it's kind of socially accepted. So mm. I think there's a little bit of we're just early in voice user interfaces being used kind of like so commonly that it is just completely accepted. But I think we'll get there. I got a lift to the airport for my sister two weeks ago and she hopped in the car and she asked the car, take me to the airport and didn't think anything of it. Just started the car, said, get me to the airport and just started driving to the airport. I'll tell this story all the time about where we were in the dining room in my old house and my dad was round. And we were trying to think of this. We went for a whiskey tasting tour with my brother-in-law. And we were trying to think about what it is that they add to the whiskey to turn it brown. Whiskey, when it's brewed, typically, normally when it's distilled, it's clear. And they add something called brewer's caramel to it to make it brown. And I couldn't remember the term. And anyway, my dad just pulls his phone out and he goes, hey, Google, what do they add to whiskey to turn it brown? Oh, it's, it's brewer's caramel. And so he's like 60-year-old didn't think twice about pulling his phone out in front of us and just asking Google a question. So I just think it's yeah. a matter of time when people get comfortable with it and all of a sudden it'll become a common behavior. Yeah. I think that you just highlighted one of the biggest advantages of voice. And I always think about you know how Elon Musk has described, wish I remember the exact word, but almost like the bits of information that can be transmitted per time. And simply there is no possible world right now where your dad could have unlocked his phone uh, hit the browser, typed in what do they put in whiskey at the same speed that he was able to hold the button down and get that answer. So, and I think that in general, just the amount that the ability for voice to be able to transmit so much information quickly, I think is a unique advantage that it's funny that almost chat and digital and social have given up on. They say, hey, that's not what we're about. We're not about speed. We're about uh, do it on your time as long as it takes. So I do wonder like how preferences are going to shift. Is it going to go more toward people wanting answers right now, speed using to just get it resolved, even if it's a more intense interaction? Or are people going to want less intense interactions where the content is spread out over a longer period of time? Mm, I think that's a really interesting observation. That, and I think it is totally dependent on the use case and the need at the time. Like, for example, I've worked in government for quite a while prior to having VOX World full-time. And it's really interesting with government services because you get a really widespread of different types of use cases. For example, if somebody gets home, I don't know what it's like over the pond in terms of the way that the recycling and bin collections and stuff like that work. But in the UK, it's kind of like a, a real bugbear. If you come home from work and the government haven't picked your bins up, people just flip out. Well, I pay my taxes all, every single month and you can't even pick my bins up. So they just freak out, right? And so that service, I've done loads of research into that service over the years, and that is a very immediate 
need. Someone wants to get that problem solved now. And things like digital channels and social are an outlet for people to vent because they're emotional and they just want to get something done now. And so you'll find if you look in the UK at all of the local government kind of like Twitter feeds and stuff, it's full of people complaining about the bins because if it's half past seven when you get home, you can't contact anyone at the council. You just go on and vent. So some things have, do have an immediate need. And so the ability to tell someone about something that you feel is immediate at the time when the need arises, then voices are perfect interface for that. doesn't matter if the office is closed. Even if the contact center is closed or using this technology, you could call up the contact center, report your missed bin or tell them that your problem has been solved, whatever it might be, at the time you need it, and then that's it. But then you compare that to another department, which might be planning, for example. You're going to get some work done on your house. You want to submit an application. You want to get the right approvals and things like that. That is something that takes you a long time to do anyway. And so if you've got a question, you could text that question and have it, the, the interaction be asynchronous and you get an answer back the next day or whenever it might be. And there's less of an immediate need and there's less of an emotional connection around it as well. So I think we'll probably see both. I don't think there's really a right or wrong or a black or a white. I think depending on the use case, depending on the need and depending on the emotional state of the user, then any of these channels I think are useful. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the interactions are going to get shorter where almost, you know, we're trying to satisfy more uh, questions that we would take to the contact center or to the customer experience center with quick one line, like, for example, Alexa or home assistant sort of prompts? Or do you think that they're going to get longer where people have more complex issues that they feel like they're comfortable tackling that maybe previously before they had to do some sort of in-person interaction? And do you think we're going to see both? I think both. I think you've talked about voice assistants specifically, you will find that the vast majority of interactions are very short, sharp, quick, simple, basic stuff. Play music, set a timer, what's my next appointment, you know, send a text message. And when I say voice assistants, I'm talking about mobile and speakers, smart speakers. So that is by far and away the most prevalent interaction type at the moment. But I think that's also because we're in a very early stage of adoption, not just of voice assistants, but of voice user interfaces. And so it takes a little while for you to get the confidence to be able to try something different, to try something a bit deeper. But I think we'll get to that deeper interaction because most of the time, especially with, I imagine that you work with Volto, a lot of service-based industries, insurance, banking, healthcare, those kind of companies that when people contact them, very rarely is it actually that they just have one thing they need sorting. They mm-hmm. might call They might call up and say, why is my bill so high? And there might be an answer for that. And it might be then afterwards, well, do you want to pay that bill now? Oh yeah, go on, I'll pay that bill now. Yeah, yeah. When's my next bill? Oh, it's not till the 15th for the next month. Okay, how long is this contract again? Oh, it doesn't expire until the end of February. And so quite often to get something done, which you think is just a billing query about why is my bill higher than it should be, Quite often, there's a load of other needs that come around when you're having that initial conversation that I think those deeper conversations can help solve. And I think that in part, the technology is there to to facilitate some of those, but some things are really complex. And I don't quite think we're there to handle the more complex use cases just yet. It's a great point. And I'm thinking about it as a consumer. And I think that, okay, when I'm calling in to a company, usually versus chat, usually. I've batched up two or three big things <laughs> that I've been putting off for a while. I'm like, okay, this is going to be the 10 or 20 minutes. My fiance says I have to take care of it today. <laughs> so I'm just going to suck it up and just go through all the things at once. I do think that's a very real behavior that we see that doing that in a digital channel would be pretty miserable. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And sometimes there's things that come up 
in the conversation. And part of designing a conversation is to anticipate those things and also to test them and design for those things. So that at some point in time, if you do your research well enough or you study enough transcripts of calls and things like that, you will know that an additional need once someone has resolved their initial billing query is when's my next bill? When's my You'll be able to anticipate that, but that's part of the job of a conversation designer is to anticipate those things and design for it. But Sometimes things just happen in the spare of the moment. You might call about something. You don't know that you want to ask about this other thing. You didn't really initially ring up about it, but a need arises in the moment. And I think that a lot of conversational AI systems that try and handle these automated conversations, often they're just built to handle that one thing, that billing query. And there isn't enough thought. And to be honest, design expertise in the world at the moment around conversational AI, there's enough systems out there that are able to handle the more kind of elaborate use cases. Yeah, I think it's actually a giant opportunity for voice. And I think it's actually one of the parts of Balto's vision I'm most excited about, which is the ability to say, people who asked about X also usually ask about Y. Or people who bring up this problem, 72% of the time also have this problem. And to be able to prompt and guide agents to address that proactively is I think something that can really help set apart companies as the best brand, as having true relationships with their customers. I think it's hard to do that. It's hard to do that in other channels because I think that usually when you're done with a chat interaction, you're done with a chat interaction. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't want the other person kind of extending it. But I think perhaps with a voice interaction, there's more ability to build a relationship and there's more ability to kind of sneak in an extra question that is intended to help the customer. Yeah. And the thing about voice is that it is real time and it is synchronous. And so you have to respond to whatever it is there and then. And so I don't know if this is definitely the case, but I strongly suspect that if you were to do some studies on this, you would find it to be the case that people are a lot more suggestible when they're having a voice conversation and people's guard are a little bit down. There's actually a conversation design kind of hack, if you like, which is that if someone is going to go through something that is a more detailed conversation that might take a little while, having them repeat the word yes a number of times at the beginning gets them a little bit more motivated, puts their brain into a slightly more positive frame of mind. And so can you confirm your name, Kane? Kane, is that? Yes. Are you ready to continue now? Yes. This is only take five minutes. Are you sure you got five minutes? Yes. And so getting people saying yes often enough kind of builds a little bit of momentum. And so, yeah, it's an interesting channel where we haven't yet understood the full implications of using it. For example, what would the implications be if you found that people are more susceptible or more suggestible? What are the implications for sales? What are the ethical considerations around that? If you can work out a formula where AI can consistently upsell someone, is it ethical? Is it not? Who knows? You know. So I think we're in a very, very interesting space at the moment and a very early space to investigate some of this stuff. What do you think? Is it ethical? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'll tell you what it reminds me of. I saw a Tony Robbins video on YouTube the other day. It was one of those times where I'm supposed to be uploading a video and I get distracted by Tony <laughs> Robbins. <laughs> and, uh, and it was about a story about him selling tapes, music tapes, right? And he was talking about the script that he was given about selling music tapes back in the 80s or whatever, when like CDs weren't around yet and vinyl was on its way out and tapes were the thing that all these companies were trying to sell. And the company he was working for was selling subscriptions to tapes. 
So he would go around door knocking, knocking on doors to try and get into someone's house with a big suitcase full of tapes and say, look, wouldn't it be fantastic if you had access to all of these tapes? And the script that he went through is really interesting because it said like, the first thing he would do is he would try and build a relationship. So it would be like, do you like music? A lot of people like music. What kind of music do you like? Oh, it's rock and roll. Oh, what about like meatloaf or whatever? Oh yeah, fantastic. He'd pull out a meatloaf tape and then he'd start talking about, wouldn't it be fantastic if you could like have access to meatloaf music anytime, place without having to worry about your vinyl scratching and drawing attention to some of the pain points. Vinyl scratches doesn't last forever. Tapes are indefinite, infinite. If they do break, you can come back and get another one, that kind of stuff. And he kind of went through this big whole spiel and got to the point of saying, would you like to subscribe and buy? And he said that 90% of people objected because they said, I don't have a tape player. Sounds really good, but I don't have a tape player. And his final clause was, so you're telling me if you had a tape player, you would be subscribing to this service? Oh yeah, definitely. Well, you promised me that. You're not just winding me up. No, no, I would. If I had a tape player, I'd subscribe. And in the back of the suitcase was a tape player. He'd pull on the desk and he would say, well, when you subscribe, we give everybody a free tape player. And he said that 70 odd percent of people closed. And so the way he was explaining that, he was actually explaining that as in that was actually a pretty bad sales tactic because they backed the customer into a corner, found the one single objection that they had, got them to admit that if that one objection could be resolved, they would subscribe and then they resolved it. And so it reminds me a little bit of that where if an AI was trained to consistently upsell people, it would seem to me to be, I don't know, there's a very fine line, isn't there, between what's in someone's best interest and what is purely just kind of like trying to drive up profits. What yeah. do you think? I think uh, it is the central challenge of our time, actually, mm. is the role of autonomy in one's life. And you can even, by the way, look at something in the US that is so controversial. Vaccines are controversial and masks are controversial. And the uh, controversial piece of them is really just the American value of being able to do what you want to do. And you get to decide what you want to do and you don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And then, of course, over the years, there's been so much cross-cultural exchange and just general, in many ways, enlightenment of our culture. We said, okay, the individual is important. Absolutely. And we need to recognize that we've built a company or country off of... Uh, that's a fun uh, Freudian slip. We've built a, a country <laughs> off of the individual. And at the same time, we recognize that you know, other cultures value the community more and that there are benefits to putting yourself second after the community. And it's you know, about finding a balance. Mm. So I say that because in every single aspect of life, in everything with the pandemic, in social media, and the idea that they are perhaps getting into your data to sell you things, you know, which you know, they are. You know, the idea that Amazon knows exactly what to recommend, the fact that Netflix is competing for your attention and knows how to keep you spending as much time as possible on Netflix or the right amount of time, the perfect amount of time so you retain the service. The fact that businesses know so much about us and are able to influence our decisions puts our autonomy in question. So then the real question then becomes, you know, right now that autonomy, that challenge to autonomy is being handled by algorithms. What happens when it's being handled by people using algorithms? Mm. Does that change like the ethical balance? And I might even pose that it is more of an ethical balance because there's some mediating force on the algorithm that says, I'm not just going to you know, feed you propaganda that was boosted up by 
a foreign power to try to influence politics or influence public opinion. I'm a person who is able to look at that and moderate it and be able to pass the appropriate communication on to you. So anyway, it might even be more ethical, but I think it's figuring out that balance is like the central question of our time. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's such a hotly debated topic as well in the US, isn't it? Around Twitter and big media and censorship. And at what point when a human steps in, does it censor free speech? And at what point is it? Because you're right, an algorithm works in the way an algorithm works. I would argue that actually even the algorithm has been designed to achieve a certain end which mm-hmm. might be the manipulation of behavior to keep you engaged in, in a certain behavior for an extended period of time. That infinite video scroll on Facebook, which they then brought over to Instagram, obviously works. There's an algorithm there that was designed specifically to do that. And there's a lot of people that waste a, a shed ton of time on those kind of things. And then when you add a human into it, to so then in real time, almost monitor and shape the behavior of the algorithm to censor certain things and boost certain other things, it then becomes a real kind of challenge. And the infrastructure is already there for machines to be able to either manipulate or be manipulated by humans in order to achieve a change in human behavior. Now we add a voice on top of that, a voice which we innately respond to. We cannot help but hear a voice and form a picture of who's talking, form a personality of who's talking. There's a really good book by Cass, who is it? It's actually not. It's um, Scott Brave and Cass Sustain, I think it is. Richard Thalem and Scott Brave, rather. Cass Sustein does the nudge book, I think. But anyway, in this book, it's called Wired for Speech. And the whole premise of the book is how the human brain is wired for speech. And when we hear a voice, we immediately can assign a gender. We can roughly work out where someone's from. We can broadly speak and understand kind of like social status. We can understand their, their emotional state. And we can infer a whole bunch of stuff from a voice. When you put a voice on top of an AI, it's still a voice we can't help but make certain assumptions and perceive it in a certain way. Like people call Alexa her. They refer to Alexa as a female because they personify it and anthropomorphize it. And so we've got all of the infrastructure underneath of all of these algorithms that are tuned to manipulate human behavior to the benefit of the company who benefits from selling advertising off the back of attention. And then we stick a voice on top of it, which can form deeper, meaningful relationships than a screen ever could. And then you're in some real kind of strange territory. And I think that you're right. It is a very, very big question. One of the bigger questions of our time, because it's inevitable that everything is going to have a voice at some point in time. I genuinely believe that the front facing touch point for most organizations within a decade is going to be an AI. And then you're in the realms of the AI having power over the user. Now, in a retail environment, that's fine because if a if a if an AI says, "I'm sorry, you can't have a refund," then the customer says, "Right, well, I'm never shopping with you again. I'm going to go to the next place." But if you're, I don't know, uh, an insurance provider that provides critical life cover for someone who needs to make a claim, and the AI is refusing co- uh, cover for something that will save someone's life, or if you're a government and you're refusing access to a passport so that someone can't leave the country, you're then in a realm where an AI is making decisions that are going to change the life of a human. And that, again, is another area where big, big consideration needs to be given. It's one of the things that we have as as part of our personality definition is to try and figure out the balance of power in the relationship and and try and cater for that. Yeah, it's so interesting. I think that to date, AI has always been nice. And what I mean by that is AI has not been the force that tells you no. AI has been the force that tells you yes. And then goes, if there's a no, it's like, we're going to hand this to the person to tell you no. It'll be very interesting to see what happens when the AI starts telling you no, which doesn't quite happen today. 
And people have, in the beginning, we're always you know, wary of any new technology. And I think that the idea of algorithms broadly, initially we approached with you know, wariness and skepticism, and it certainly still exists. And we recognize that the algorithms were built by companies for the company's benefit. But to your point, Kane, we also have started to develop almost relationships with these algorithms where we do call Alexa she, where we often will like name our devices. And so I think we've almost, you can even look at TikTok as a great example, where when people, if you ask someone, you know, why do you like TikTok? The thing that I hear all the time is they just have the best algorithm. And it's like, what? That's entered the modern lexicon? They are just so good at wiring my brain. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of feel on one hand, we gave up. We're like, hey, honestly, net net, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy. I've never heard that before, but it makes total sense. To the point where it, if it's got to the point where it is popular opinion and popular understanding that it is algorithms that are dictating what's happening. Because yeah. I think that's the other thing is, is the general lack of awareness about technology broadly. Like I remember when there was a story that leaked and didn't leak, I suppose the information leaked, that Amazon was outsourcing all of its, and Apple, both outsourcing all of its training data reviews to India and the Philippines. So essentially when you say something to Siri and it doesn't understand what you say, Apple were farming that out to Indonesia or somewhere to a private contractor and so at Amazon who listens to the transcript and then it will feed back to Apple what should have happened when this thing is said. Either it creates a new intent or it adds it to the training data to resolve an existing intent. And everyone in the industry, in the conversational industry, kind of expected that to happen anyway. There's no way you can have an AI that you're not monitoring, you're not improving over time. But the general public were like, oh my God, what? You mean my voice has been sent to India or Philippines or wherever and someone's listening to me talk to mice and it was just big kickoffs about it. And so I think that there's a general complete lack of awareness about what's happening behind the scenes of these technology solutions. But if you're saying now that the word algorithm and understanding of the fact that it is algorithms behind the scenes that work in most of this stuff is becoming to be kind of more popular understood, then at least that's actually a good sign in my opinion because at least it's people not just thinking that that's just how it is and, and that's just the way it is, you know? Yeah, I think a, a lot of documentaries like, see, what was it? The one about Facebook, do you remember? Was it The Social, social Dilemma? Uh, the Social oh, the so Dilemma, yep. No, yeah, The Social yeah. Dilemma, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. I think that very much brought to the forefront the reality about how our data is being used and how our experiences change based on our data and the different ways that third parties are involved in monetizing that data. So I think it brought to the forefront and created that conversation and in the beginning, of course, there was outrage and there still is some extent where people are saying maybe Facebook needs to be regulated. And I think most people are starting to lean toward the fact that tech giants or social media giants do need some form of regulation. They are, have been in hot water for the last few weeks with a handful of like whistleblower complaints you know, about, you know, are they protecting their users appropriately? But I do think on the whole, what it created is almost like a little more acceptance of the algorithms. It says, hey, well, you know what? I really like the service. I definitely want a little bit more privacy if it's available, but I do feel like it's serving me up the right content that I want at the right time. And the ads are the least invasive ads I could have. And as long as it's, you know, the information's properly protected, I'll sign that away. And I do think that that, that is becoming more and more the popular opinion. Mm. Yeah. I think that the thing is, is that if you were to rewind 20 years and describe what would be the case today... If you look in the small print of Facebook, it says that Facebook owns every photo that you upload. 
So people think that they're uploading photos into Facebook for their own personal kind of like photo library. But in the T's and C's, Facebook owns the rights to every photo uploaded onto it. And so if you were to find, like rewind, that might have changed, by the way, but that was definitely the case in like 2016 when I was signing up and that. If you were to rewind, though, 20 years back and say to someone, fast forward 20 years, you're going to have this little supercomputer in your pocket and you're going to have this uh, service that you pour all of your information into. It knows you better than you know yourself. It's able to target adverts based on what it anticipates you're going to be interested in based on the network that it knows about you and the connections that you have. And you're going to be hooked on it. You're going to use it for four hours a day. It's going to you know, consume a load of your life. And you kind of describe that it's going to rewire kids' brains. It's going to cause a whole load of depression. It's going to contribute to suicide rates in teenagers and all this kind of stuff. Do you want that to happen? Then there'd have been a lot more, whoa, that seems like a huge shift but the fact that it happens gradually over time and it's not an immediate effect is the most dangerous part about it. And I think bringing that conversation back to AI and the autonomy of AI is that what's kind of decent is that there is a lot of talk happening around things like standardization of protocols when it comes to AIs talking to each other or building on top of one platform and another platform. There is a lot of conversations happening about the ethics around the use of AI and things like that, which is good to happen now. And potentially things like regulation and all that kind of stuff, which which are all good conversations to happen now because it does creep up on you over time. And it's very difficult to see the signs when they happen, but it's easy to look back and say, well, in the last 10 years, this is where we are, you know? So I think it's a good conversation to have now, but the difficulty is what do you actually do about it? Because as you said, there isn't any AIs around now that are denying someone a passport. There's nothing around now that is actually having that impact in the world. And so people don't tend to be proactive around solving what's to come. Hence why there's not much activity going on around global warming. People tend to react to what's happened rather than plan for what they think might not happen potentially in the future, you know? Yeah. I do think the tech companies in general are planning it. And I think that society isn't planning it, but I think the tech companies in general are. I was talking with Balto's chief product officer actually yesterday about comparisons with Balto and social media and how both of them, the application that we built in social media, are asking for your attention. And we have to make sure that we ethically use your attention. And we have to make sure that the choices that you make in the application, just like the choices you make in social media, are your choices and respect the autonomy of the user. I do think a lot of these principles are set in advance by tech companies. And then I think, honestly, what happens is sweeping pressure from other companies who perhaps are a little bit on the edge of risk or the edge of boundaries are acceptable. And then these companies look at the other companies they're competing against and saying, shoot, their time on page is so much longer than, than ours. If we you know, don't keep attention, people are going to be shifting over to the other options. So there is almost, I think, this, and people are concerned about it broadly, this uh, keeping up with the Joneses effect of technology in order to be able to live in society, you need to be adopting all the recent technology. Mm-hmm. And just imagine if you didn't have any phone. Imagine you didn't have a cell phone, right? You know, not even a smartphone. Imagine you didn't have a cell phone, and which you haven't. That's also a relatively new invention to be able to have like a good cell phone that's reasonable with you know reception that's not huge. It would be very difficult to engage in normal social activities today without a cell phone. So the ludites are the ones who have flip phones. But soon the Luddites will be the ones with smartphones and then the innovators will be the ones with uh, brain-machine interfaces. 
<laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. So we can go back for a second to customer experience and what's happening with voice in CX and contact center. Kane, do you see a more automated future where most of the voice experiences we have are going to be completely AI-based and automated? And where does AI voice come in and where does human voice come in? I think what we're going to see in immediate future is at the moment, there's a lot of hype around voice automation. But the reality is, as we've been discussing at the top of the show, a lot of the things that work is capturing intent and then doing something about it. So what's really difficult is to design a full end-to-end voice conversation. It can happen and it does happen and we've worked on plenty, but it's a lot of work essentially. And so I think that there's a a culture around or an emergence around trying to automate everything, basically. But the reality is that you're not going to automate everything. There is purely and simply going to be some things that actually is far better if a human solves it. Let's say you're a debt collection company and you've got people who are approaching you who are in financial difficulty. Some of them may be having whatever, I don't know, mental issues or what have you. There are going to be vulnerable people, basically. And you're better off having a human talk to that vulnerable person to come to some sort of agreement around payments or what have you. You might have, every company has things that are going to be better solved by humans. Certain things require judgment. Not, not everything works on a rule-based kind of system all the time. Some things require human judgment. Some things require human creativity as well, you know. And so I don't think in, in any of the kind of like immediate future is going to be able to handle absolutely everything. There is inevitably some very low-hanging fruit that can be solved very simply. And not simply, simply, but can be worked on by using this technology. You've obviously got one of the products yourself that, that is doing some, some tremendous stuff on the agent assist side of things. In that environment, the technology is assisting people to do their job better. And in the same way on the front end, if you think about automating conversations in an IVR, for example, it's doing the exact same thing. The aim isn't to automate everything to take the jobs away from the humans. The aim is to try and take the repetitive, boring, manual tasks that a human does and to get more out of the human's brain rather than having them tap and, and swipe and do things that a computer can do repetitively without getting tired and without having to work eight hours and then go home for sleep. <laughs> and so I think what we're going to see is blending between the AI and the human. And the AI needs to be used to do what it does well and the human needs to be do used for, it, for what it does well. So the AI is good at very boring, very monotonous, very repetitive things. It's good at staying awake for long periods of time and doing things when everyone else is asleep. And the humans better at creativity and solving problems. And so in the same way as Balto, your solution works to empower the agent, you're going to have AIs on the front end that are going to resolve some tasks. In some other cases, actually, they're going to gather a big bunch of information and then hand it over to the human. So the human doesn't have to spend the time asking the next customer the same questions all over again just to validate who someone is or capture a bunch of information that can be easily got from an AI. The human can then work on actually processing that thing. And then further down the line, I think you're going to see even more of a blend where, I don't know if you saw the Google CC AI announcements from Google Next yesterday where the CC AI Insights is now kind of generally available. And there's a bunch of stuff that it does. But one of the things I found really interesting is that, and you actually probably might even have this solution already, is that... When it's listening to a customer calling, not only is it trying to recognize the intent behind the user, it's also trying to extract entities. And so if a customer says, my name's Dave, and I live at 42 Malvern Drive, and my bin was supposed to be collected on Thursday, or your product was supposed to get to me this morning, it can extract those entities from the conversation. So it knows that this person's name is Dave. It knows the address is this address. It knows that the shipping date should have been this date. It knows that the status of the order is delayed. And at the moment, it doesn't populate all of that into a CRM. 
But you can imagine a world where all it takes is to stitch those two things together, create a Salesforce integration, and all of a sudden, a customer calling, giving you information is being pre-populated into your CRM. Because you don't want humans sitting on the phone trying to type into the CRM while they're trying to listen to someone's situation. You want the human engaging fully in the conversation, empathizing and understanding the customer's issue, and then using their knowledge, skills, and creativity to help the customer solve a problem. You don't want them typing away and tapping and swiping and getting distracted and switching from one screen to the next screen. And so in the future, I think it's going to become a lot more blended. The AI is going to do what it does well and the humans are going to do what it does well. And I think they can live very happily together. Yeah. Kena, I think that, that that future is already here. Even the ability to input the information automatically into the CRM. I think the challenge with that is that AI, like people, make mistakes. And mm-hmm. do you, what error rate do you want to accept in you know missing the, the right number of the address or mistranscribing a word of the street because it's a funny word and a human would know, oh, I'm sorry, actually, can you spell that out? Because that's I haven't heard that before, yeah. but the AI just says, I'll give it my best guess. And you know, Blurple Street. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sunset, Sunset Blurple Avenue. Um, <laughs> so I think that there's the basic sort of error rates we're willing to accept. And that's probably the fundamental challenge is people want to treat their CRM as sacred and feel that by and large, a human having some ability to accept the information is important. And that's actually the approach that we've seen used most often in you know, automating after-call work is that it doesn't just go straight in the CRM. There's like a human that accepts the fields or says, this all looks correct or, or something like mm-hmm. that to, to create that human-in-the-loop sort of protection around the integrity of the data. But if you think about even the use case you gave of my name's Dave and here's my address and I'm having a problem with my bin hasn't been picked up. My guess is people call that division of the government for most of the time, 10 or 20 different things. It's not unlimited, right? Mm. So my bin hasn't been picked up. It's all over Twitter. They know it's a use case. So there should be a field in the CRM that says, choose one of the top 10 most common problems that the customer's having. And the ability to just you know, take my bin hasn't been picked up and automatically fill out the field, I think that's a no-brainer. So I do wonder what the human's role in CRM will be, because I do think a big piece of it will be validating AI information mm-hmm. and then some like free note or free text field or something that's deeper or more creative, like a customer strategy. Like, what's your strategy in making this customer delighted? And that's the mm-hmm. sort of thing I think people will be doing in their after-call work rather than putting in addresses and names and phone numbers. Yeah, definitely. I think validation is, is definitely something. And there's areas where, as I said before, there's like, it's some things aren't cut and dry. Some things are, there's gray areas. You know what I mean? Like, let's say if you're a retailer, like I ordered some blinds, right? And turns out that the company I ordered the blinds from, where it's an online company, you go on, you put your measurements in, you select your blind, you place the order, and it goes off. The email you say your order's being confirmed, then you should really get an email from them saying that your order's been dispatched and no such email arrived. So called the company. It's like, look, I was supposed to get an email. You said that I would receive a shipping date within seven days. It's now been two weeks. Like what's going on? Turns out that they use a totally different company to do the manufacturing. That company uses a totally different company to do the distribution. And then they use a totally different company once it gets into the UK to do the final mile. And so there's four companies at play here. And it turns out that the blind company that took my order doesn't really get any updates from the manufacturer on anything at all, ever. So they can't actually tell me anything. 
So what actually happened, which was actually really good, is that I was put on hold. They made a call to the manufacturer and I was literally on hold for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. I was on hold for ages. They came back and they said, the manufacturer is saying that this particular order number has left. So it's with a distributor. Once it's with the distributor, it should be with you within two weeks. And so stuff like that, where it doesn't, computer that can solve that problem it could do if the two companies were joined together and mm-hmm. all the distribution chain was joined up it could easily be solved but you know i've worked in digital transformation for quite a number of years and i'm not naive enough to think that you can snap your hands and the world will be stitched together some it just doesn't work like that some enterprises have such legacy systems that are going to be a nightmare to get rid of and some have certain cultures and certain ways of working that makes it very difficult and so we're not just talking about technology we're talking about people and culture and that shifting in a direction that makes all of this infrastructure possible. And so you're always, I think, definitely in the near term and medium term, going to need humans for that long tail stuff. When stuff goes wrong, it doesn't fit within the brackets of the process. That's where I think a lot of time is going to be spent, which is unfortunate (laughs) if you look at it in a certain way, because at the moment, there's some calls that agents get that are fairly easy. Oh, that's the issue. Yeah, that's because of this job done, call over, goodbye, next one. Whereas it's going to become a lot more about working with a lot more detailed, complex cases, needing to do a lot more creative work and shuffling around behind the scenes to get the customer the right kind of answer. But yeah, yeah, I don't think it's going to be as immediate as we might think. Although things move faster in the grand scheme of things, as we were saying earlier on, things move faster in the grand scheme of things than you think. So yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I totally agree. And I think uh, that the reality that you described of when it gets to an agent, it's going to be the really complex stuff. I think is absolutely happening and will will continue to happen. I don't see it as a bad thing, though. I think that if you look at the things that agents like and anyone likes in their job is a little bit of a challenge, a little bit of complexity, a little bit of ideation, uh, some level of variability. It's not the same thing moment after moment after moment. So I think that the agent job will get harder in terms of what they'll be handling. But I do think it'll also get more interesting and more rewarding. I think that the agents will be better equipped to handle those harder and interesting scenarios. And then I also think that the talent pool will be going up and agents are going to you know, get paid more. We're already seeing you know, with just labor shortages all across the world that pay rates for contact center agents are skyrocketing. So I think they're going to get paid more. And it's going to be a more viable career path and entry point for a lot of people that right now are like, man, I'm at $12 an hour in a certain fast food or retail environment. And the contact center starts at $11.50. I'm not going to drop my pay to go to a contact center. But I think if the rate is boosted higher than that, then I think a lot of folks will find that it presents a really viable career path then could be an entryway into a whole world of developing professional skills and working with customers. Mm, definitely, definitely. There's a really good lecture that is on, it's on YouTube and it's been created into, I don't know if you've seen the, I think it's the Royal Arts Society or Royal Society of Arts. Like they do these videos where they take a lecture and they turn the whole video into someone just drawing with a marker pen. And as the lecture's going along, they're just animating it with a marker pen. And in the end, they've got this big image that's really cool. And there's one about work, employment, motivation, that kind of stuff. And essentially, it says that first and foremost, what you want to do is pay people enough to take the conversation about money off the table. 
And I think the contact center has struggled often because it's always been seen as a cost center. And so it's always been about driving down costs and therefore it's always been about trying to get cheap labor. Let's outsource it to the Philippines and try and get you know our costs down. Let's try and pay as little as we can for our labor because humans don't scale. To the One human can only answer one call and that's as best you're going to get because they need to put that call down before they answer another one. So they just don't scale. The more calls you get, the more people you need, the costs go up. And so it's always been an issue of trying to get costs down. Whereas now, we know now that customer experience is one of the single most important factors that customers rate as being important when deciding what product to buy or what brand to engage with. There was a study that I'll come across the other week, which was saying that something in the region of 70% of customers would leave their bank for another bank that provides a better experience. And I've actually done that myself. I've been on a search for the right bank for about 10 years. I've been through four different banks to find the one that I'm at because it's, it's digital first and everything's online, everything's via the app and it's absolutely seamless. And so in a world where customer experience is absolutely paramount, what you don't want is a bunch of people who are unhappy because they're getting paid pennies trying to make a positive impact on the people that they're talking to. <laughs> but given that how important customer experience is, that's exactly what they're doing. The people in the call center answering the calls are the single most important factor on the customer experience. So I think that definitely wages need to go up. And when you can prove that happy customers at the end of a call are sticking with that company or they've bought more through that company or they renew a contract, then the call center is actually a revenue generator. And then you can start thinking about putting more money back into that. If you can automate some things as well, take some costs out of elsewhere by automating certain elements, then you can reinvest a little bit and take money off the table. So that's the first thing is take money off the table, pay people enough so they don't have to worry about it. They don't have to complain about it. And then on top of that, you've got three different layers. One is purpose, the other one is progression, and the other one is autonomy. And in the example I gave about that caller, the blind company making a call to the manufacturer, they didn't have to do that. That wasn't part of the rule book. It wasn't part of the script. They made a choice to do that. They had autonomy. They took an action and they got me an answer. It wasn't the answer of when are the blinds going to arrive at my door, but it was certainly better than saying, sorry, Bye. <laughs> and so there was autonomy. And I think when you're dealing with these long tail complex cases, you can have a degree of autonomy. The other thing is purpose, which comes down to branding, the culture at the company, what the brand means and what it stands for and why someone turns up to work in the morning. And I think that there's a big internal branding opportunity. If you look at examples like Tom's Shoes, for example, they have a really, really kind of like staff focused culture where the KPIs in the contact center are not about getting people off the phones. There was a story about someone who's spent 12 hours on the phone talking to a client, a customer, just talking to them. And so the purpose and having people want to be there because they believe in what you're trying to achieve is important. And then the last thing is progression. And you mentioned there that there's opportunities for progression in the call center when you start, especially when you start introducing these tools like Balto and, and Conversational AI, where you know they're not just answering calls and inputting data, they're checking data, they're contributing to training an AI model. Potentially then there's progression into being involved in maintaining and managing the AI model. And every customer service manager, a lot of customer service managers that I have known and know, all started out handling calls. And so there's definitely a progression route there and there's definitely variety uh, if you're utilizing these technologies. So I think, to, yeah, exactly to your point, the potential of the contact center from an employability perspective is huge. Ken, I absolutely love that. Let's sign off there. This was awesome. Totally loved the conversation today. Appreciate it, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure. This could be a thing. I've enjoyed that. It was really good. I think so, too. <laughs> I think so, too. Let's do it again. Yeah, nice one. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks. I'll see you soon. See you soon. Bye now.